Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. As we move through Hanukkah and wrap up Hanukkah, we of course move through uh, the Yosef story. Um, we are going to, so we're in Parshat Miketz. Um, we're going to pick things up, uh, sadly after Pharaoh's dreams. So you guys don't get to hear me do the Elvis song from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Although maybe we can do that as a, as a, as a post podcast treat for those who want to stick around after the family picture. Rabbi Schatz will sing it. Um, uh, so I'm going to pick things up. Um, after, after Pharaoh's dreams, after the initial, and so, and so we're going to now pick things up. There is a famine in the land. Um, I'll share my screen as we usually do. We'll move through, um, sort of the bits of narrative that seem to be most germane to where we're going to be going. So we're going to be looking at the very end of chapter 42. I'll, I'll bring us through that parak with some rapidity. Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt. He keeps Benjamin back, right? Of course, Benjamin now, as far as he knows, the only surviving son um, from his favorite wife, Rachel. They go down. Joseph is second in command in Egypt after beautifully uh, interpreting Elvis Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph sees his brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And over the course of the narrative, right, there's a lot of back and forth about Joseph knows who his brothers are. They don't know who he is. He remembers. That's what Rabbi Klickfeld and I are speaking about tomorrow morning. So if you would. Like- Ooh, a little, <clears throat> little preview for you there. Little Parsha, Parsha, a, a, a positively ponderous Parsha preview. Okay. So, uh, they don't know who he is. We aren't spies, they say, right? We ju- we're just trying to come and get some food. He keeps going at them, right? They go back and forth and he, he sort of refuses, right? He's, he's, he's messing with them, right? He's messing with them, trying to sort of see how they'll respond to it and says, unless your younger brother comes here, right? He's trying to see how they'll respond. Unless your younger brother comes here, um, I'm not really, I'm not, I can't trust you, right? I'm not, I'm not going to take you at your word. He keeps them. And then he says, okay, fine. Leave one of your brothers here. And it, and it's so interesting when, when you think about this, this dance, right? They sent Joseph away. Now he's saying, leave one of the brothers here in order for you to bring another one back, right? It's just, fascinating um that this family really needs some some a a good family therapist or two but okay um so leave leave one of them leave one of y'all here doesn't say y'all in the hebrew but leave one of y'all here um and bring bring benjamin they don't know what to do right we're being punished and you and you see here right in verse 21 we're being punished on account of our brother right they have a sense there's still this lingering guilt from, from what they did all these years ago, right? We're being punished. That's why this, this tsara, this distress is upon us. And here's Reuven. And Reuven is going to be, it's interesting, Rabbi Shas, I was thinking about 
we we've had certain kind of like secondary characters pop up a couple of times as we've been doing this um more than once now we we did loat a little bit a few a few yeah. weeks ago mm-hmm. we we talked about Ruven's name a couple of weeks ago and now we're going to yeah. be focusing in on on Ruven today it's like we mm-hmm. we're developing a, a a little friend group as we go through Brashi it's nice <laughs> um Ruven speaks up um I told you so I told you not to do anything to Yosef, but now here it comes, right? Here here comes the payback, because if you'll remember from a few Prakim ago, Reuven had said, don't kill Yosef, right? That's what he said. He said, don't do that, and tried to spare him. And when he had walked away, that's when they, they sold they sold Yosef off. Um, Joseph, Joseph cries. He, he's, he's going through his own thing. He keeps Shimon. He sends them, right? Yosef sends them back with grain. Um, and he doesn't even take their money, right? Again, Joseph kind of manipulating the situation. They came back to Yaakov. They give him, they give him the rundown, right? This man spoke harshly to us. Um, we tried convincing him. He still didn't believe us. Bring your younger brother to me so that I know that you that you aren't spies. And it turns out he didn't even take our money. That's the summary, right? That, that's sort of the, the run up to what we're going to be talking today. And we're going to be, um, oh, mm, nope. Whoops. Come back. Come back. Come back, Psukim. Come on back, Psukim. Um, and we're going to be focusing in on, uh, chapter 42 verses 36, 37, uh, 38 today. Okay, here we go. Vayomer Elohim Yaakov Avihem Oti Shikaltem. Their father Yaakov said to them, you, you, You're bereaving me, right? You always bereave me. Yosef, Enenu Veshimon, Enenu Veet Binyamim Hikahu, Alai Hayu Hulan. Joseph is gone, Shimon is gone, and now you're going to take Benjamin too. Uh, that, that all, all these things ha- have happened to me. These things always happen to me. Vayomer Ruven el Aviv Lemor, Ruven says to his father, et shnei vanai tamit, you can kill my two sons, im lo avi enu elecha, if I don't bring Shimon, if I don't, oh, it's interesting, I just said Shimon, if I don't bring Presumably Benjamin back to you, although although the antecedent is unclear. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. So I'll just I'll just sort of say, this is what caught my eye. Wherever Shatz and I go back and forth about who who picks which Psukim. This is what caught my eye. I had never noticed what what strikes me as a particularly like really dramatic moment in the narrative. That, that Reuven makes this leap to say, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you, right? To me, that just strikes me as, as a very um, dramatic, uh, sort of like an overcommit in terms of what he's willing to do to make this happen. And I, I just, I think that's really interesting. There's other interesting pieces in these verses, but that's the thing that initially jumped out to me. Vayomer lo yered b'ni imachem. Yaakov said, he, he, won't, he won't go down with you. My son isn't going down with you. Ki achiv met vehu levado nishar. For his brother is dead and he, he's the only one left. 
Ukra'ahu ason baderech asher telchuva. There will be, this word ason is, is like disaster, death, right? Something terrible will happen with him on the way that, that you're taking him. Vehorabtem et sevati be'agon she'ola. You will send my, 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 my white head, like my, my white hair, my gray hair down to Sheol in grief. So not, Yaakov, not a particularly big fan of the plan that Reuven suggests. Those are our psukim. Rabbi Schatz will expertly lead us as always to aggregate some kushiot and then we'll dive into some commentaries. I'll just I'll just mention one thing before the Kushio because I'm not going to focus on this but I thought it was interesting that the word ason um some commentators talk about it as a noun like that that you actually they were going to come upon this thing called ason um which as Rabbi Shapiro said you know means death or destruction or something bad but some of the commentators like to imagine that not only was something going to happen to them, but the way that it's written in the text is as if it's like a rock you come across, right? Like a boulder or something that was actually going to get in your way. So I just thought that was an interesting thing um, to point out. Okay, any kushiot on these three verses? Not the verses before, not the verses after, but these three verses. Yeah, Nancy. Okay, maybe this is just obvious to me because I have become a grandparent of two grandsons. But here Jacob has just said, you know, all these bad things happen to me all the time. And, and you know, my sons and you brought bereavement. And then he says, you might kill my two sons, which are his grandsons. Like, Oh my God, you think that would bring him bereavement? So I, I know you're saying it's like an overkill and a whatever, but it just hit me like, excuse me? Yeah, the rabbis agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, a lot of the rabbis say, um, this is actually the part of these three psukim that there is the most commentary about. Um, and they are talking a lot about how you know, Jacob feels like they're his own sons. Just because they're his grandchildren doesn't mean that he doesn't feel as much love for them as he would his own children. Um, and then the rabbis also say, and also Reuben had other kids. Like, why those two sons? Why why not the other two? Um, but yes, you're picking up on something that the rabbis, that the rabbis too pick up on and, um, and, and maybe makes it all the more uh, dramatic that, that he could even imagine that this is something that would satisfy his father. Um, I have a little midrash that we're going to go into this on, but, but yeah, great, great point. Elon. So I was actually going to bring that point up, but I have a point from each of the other two verses as well. The first being uh, Jacob's response in the first verse that we read, which is like, it's kind of all about me, Right. Like, I don't really, it's not about Joseph, it's about, about Benjamin, it's about me. I'm like the victim here, You, I'm always bereaved, what's going on? Nobody cares about me, poor Jacob, right? It's a, it's a very unattractive um, uh, characteristic that they're pointing out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that kind of ties into the comment on verse 38 as well, which is clearly Reuben knew 
that it was like, yeah, you can kill my two sons. Like, okay, there's no way. But 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 Jacob doesn't respond to that. He doesn't say, what, have you lost your mind? Right? And and it, once again, pointing out that it, actually he doesn't particularly care about the two sons. It is all about him. And I, I'm curious as to if the rabbis see that and what they have to say about that. Great. Um, the answer is yes, they have what to say about it. And and the midrash that I'm, that I'm going to bring... I keep saying it's a midrash. I believe I'm remembering that correctly. It might be a, uh, just a commentary, but um, they're going to talk about that, that, that we don't hear Jacob's voice. And what does that imply? What does that imply for exactly what you're saying? Like the, the way in which it makes him look as a character, but also what does it, what does it imply to Reuben about how Jacob feels about him and his children? But it's not only that. Even in the in the, the last part of the third verse that we read, where he said, "You will send my white head down yeah. to, to Sheol in grief." It's about him, right? It's about right. what it's going to do to him. It's it's um, like I said. It, it, I'm not sure what what the point is. Is that is he uh, is he a narcissist? What's why why this focus? Why his own focus on him? And not not other characters. Yeah, yeah. Why is it so selfish when clearly there's so much else, as Rabbi Shapiro mentioned before, going on with the other members of his family and his own children? Yeah, Jay. Um, the first thing that came into my head when we started reading these three lines is how I would feel if I was one of those other brothers when he talks about, oh, well, my one son is dead and Simeon's no more. And now Benjamin, my youngest son's given. What about the other brothers? It just seems like there's this still this not positive feeling about your other children. Yeah. That your only folk the focus seems to only be on Rachel's children. And yeah. I think if I was in that situation, I would not be very happy. I'm just trying to read it in, read into it what like Gad or one of the other brothers would think. Because it's pretty vicious. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. And it plays very nicely into, into what Elon said about Jacob being right. So full of himself that we're not even, we're not even talking about or, or recognizing that there are also other children that could be impacted by him either thinking too much about himself or even if he takes one step outside of his narcissism, thinking only about specific children. Yeah, Renee. Just to, can I? interject just for a sec there just to put it jay to put an even finer linguistic point on what you're saying right if you when you look at that hebrew in 38 lo yered bini imachem my son won't go down with you there are his sons too right like this this whole sort of psychodrama that unfolds over the course of brashid is so contingent on favoritism, right? And back and forth, Yitzchak and Yishmael, right? And Yaakov and Esav and now Yosef and his other brothers, and now Binyamin and his other brothers, and and sort of compounding some of what Elon was saying and, and Jay, what I think you're rightly pointing out, like, is, is Jacob paying attention to what's transpiring in this story, right? Is, is he not getting the memo on how toxic it can be when when there's this level of favoritism, I, it, it it not a gr- not a great look, right? I think I think um, per what Rabbi Schatz, some of what Rabbi Schatz is referring to, um, the rabbis aren't huge fans of of Reuben's move 
here. Um, but I, I'm with you guys. I, I also think Yaakov, uh, not, not a great look for him um, in these two teams. Yeah. Yeah, Renee. So two things. One, were these the only two sons that Ruben had? No. And they were? No. Okay. So maybe um, the favoritism continues because Ruben is offering those specific two sons because maybe those are, he knows that those are Jacob's favorites. So he feels like, okay, well, if he offers Jacob these two favorite grandsons of his, then he must really know that, that, that he, that they brothers would be careful taking Benjamin back because hmm. he didn't offer a daughter or any of his other children. He offered these specific two kids. Yeah. 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 Great point. Love that point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Any other, I don't see any other virtual hands, any other physical hands. Yeah. Barbara. Um, actually the feeling of self-importance of Jacob and the favoritism goes all the way back to when his mother made him the first choice over his brother. Um, I mean, the same feelings are there. His mother is making him feel important. He's feeling important that he's willing to take the, um, not birthright, but the, uh, it's his birthright, but he'd already given, gotten that from his brother, but the, the um, blessing from his father mm -hmm. and, all of that goes back all the way there. I mean, that's his lifelong feeling. This is not a new feeling on the part of Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that Jacob is a flawed character from the beginning. And potentially, if we wanted to go into, um, like, the psyche of it all, I of him, I guess, we could imagine that that comes from Rebecca, that she really sets him up to actually be someone who has to look out for himself in what we see as a very selfish way, because if not, he's going to be kind of overrun by all these people, right? He doesn't get the wife that he wants because someone walks all over him and Rebecca has to tell him what to do because he's seemingly not strong enough to, um, to have kind of come to his own conclusions and get that, get what, what is needed for him to be successful from his father. So yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a great point and one that just speaks to how Brayshit, which unfortunately we're coming to a close of soon, is all about these different fam familial dynamics, which are not foreign to us, but are definitely complicated um, in ways that we understand what it's like to, to be part of a family system. Um, I'm just looking for other physical hands. Okay. Oh, yes, Karen. <clears throat> when I first started taking a class, yeah, uh, Rabbi Rimbaum had uh, the hour before you pick up the kids from religious school. He had a class on the dysfunctional families of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Great. Book. Just saying. Yeah. No, it's it's <laughs> it's. I'm sure it was a class that had that had a plethora of resources <laughs> because there is, there is a lot to pull from uh, specifically in Brayshit and a little bit in Shmot, Um and then picks up again with great laws about familial uh, dynamics in Leviticus. Uh, <laughs> um, Robert Shapiro, why don't you kick us off and then uh, I will chime in when desired. Great. <laughs> 
Um, so like I said, I, I, I have a few, I have a few different pieces on this that I'm, that I'm interested to share. There's one that, that is a total left field thing. We'll see how much I want to confuse and annoy Rabbi Schatz as, uh, as the morning unfolds. Um, but like I said, the, the, there, there's a lot here. And, and I think, um, I, I resonate with a lot of, what you guys are picking up on in terms of um, the challenges of these family dynamics, uh, just um, I, I think that these these three verses in terms of the back and forth or, or even the, the, the rabbis pick up on how in, <laughs> in verse 38, Yaakov doesn't even really respond directly to the offer. Right. He just sort of keeps saying how terrible it is, it is for him. Right. He, he doesn't say bad idea, Reuven. Right. He, he just sort of, um, it's almost like he's, he's lost in his own reverie. Wait, don't uh, go too far down this hole. I have stuff. Oh, mm, go back. Go back to another. Go back. <laughs> Rewind. Um, but but like I said, what what initially caught my eye on these verses was was trying to wrap my head around Ruven's motivation, right? What what could get him um, to a place where he would make that that extreme of an offer? Um, and Nancy, like you were saying, not a great offer for Yaakov either, right? Like why why would he be on board with that? Most of the commentaries just sort of keep saying, yep, Ruven, bad idea. Um, but the the one thing I found that that sort of offered something that I'm like, huh, maybe, um, was the Orachaim who said something to the effect of <clears throat> perhaps Ruven's knowledge that he had no share in the guilt of selling Yosef gave him confidence that both he uh that, that both he and his brother would return unharmed. He alluded to the fact that only he was able to have such confidence seeing that the other brothers bore this guilt of having sold Yosef by twice emphasizing entrust him to my hands and I will return him. Right. So I'm, I'm going to quickly like share my screen again, just because the Orachim is picking up on like specific um, linguistic elements um, in that. Uh, oh, Zoom's doing a weird thing. Can you guys still see my screen? Sometimes it's been doing this to me lately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna have to close out this window. Um, so you see here, um, uh, right? Imlo, uh, right? Tana oto al yadi, right? I like give him to my hands. It doesn't say al yadenu. It says al yadi ani ashivenu. It doesn't say the anachnu nashivenu. Right? Like he's picking up on the grammar very specifically um, in in. Uh, the second half of verse 37 to sort of hold up to say it's not because Ruven has, has faith in the objective goodness of his brothers and going back up to 36 um, you see here um, it, it it also seems like Jacob is kind of on to the brothers a little bit some of the commentators pick up on this that maybe even though the oh, hold on um my computer is being weird. Um, maybe even though the brothers could have thought that they had sort of pulled a fast one on Jacob before in terms of like, you know, that, oh, Joseph was eaten by this wild animal. It seems like Jacob's kind of onto them a little bit in verse 36. Um, and Reuven almost kind of echoing this here that like you can't necessarily trust them. 
but you can trust me. And you can trust me so much that I'm going to make this crazy out there offer. You know, I'm not going to really do that. I know I'm not going to really do that, but you can trust me. And here's how, you know, I, right. Like, it's like how my, right. How kids will say, yeah, I, I swear, I swear to God. Right. It's like, no, 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 don't swear to God. Right. Um, but that, but how people will sort of go out of their way to make outlandish commitments because they're so, so confident in themselves. So maybe, maybe, right. That what's going on with Ruven here is that, because he has confidence in himself, not his brothers, but himself as, as sort of laid out by the, the grammar of that second half of the verse, maybe, maybe, um, that's, that's why he's, he's willing to, it's, to put himself out there. It's funny that you say that because that was the part that I knew that that was the part that you were most excited about. And when I looked at it, I was like, yeah, but it's because he knows he's alive, right? Like he, he was part of the whole scheme of making sure that he didn't die. Now, I guess when you are separated from someone for so long, I guess, yes, sure, he could have, he could have died in, in the span of time that he hasn't known where he was, but he knew that they threw him in a pit and that he ended up fine, right? He knows that he's not dead, at least from that point. And so it's, it was interesting to me when you brought it up because it is fascinating and I hadn't focused on it before. But in reading it, I, I thought too of that like overconfidence of here's the most extreme thing that I can offer. And like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, don't you then realize that I know that Joseph is alive and I'm going to bring him back and all is going to be fine. Um, anyway, so that it's interesting that you just picked up on that because that that's exactly what I thought when I read, when I read the verse. Yeah. I, it it's still a tough sell. I mean, there is totally. uh, Ra- Rabbi Shat. I know you have a midrash or something that you're eager to share, um, and I would never want to take that away from you ever. It's actually um, a dude piece, which is even funnier. But it's not. It, but anyway, go ahead. you know, see, uh, <laughs> Rabbi Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, closet fan of Chassidu, is I think what we continue to see unfold in this uh, in this year. Um, but but there's there's a lot to be said also, and and one of the pieces that I found that was really interesting takes takes Reuven to task for being so careless with his words, right? Yeah. And just because you you might feel like saying something, the the dramatic implications that that can have. Um, yeah. But but so yeah, I'm I, I'm open to other thoughts, right? I'm I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around this. Um, so yeah, uh, if Rabbi Schatz has other thoughts or if other folks have thoughts, it's 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 a tricky one for me. I'm not I'm not quite sure why it's still sticking in my cross so much, but um, maybe for me, I I I I'll say it like this: I can't imagine ever saying that with with my kids, right? To your parents, I I, I can't imagine any circumstance in which I would say. And there are folks who who allegorize it, right? The Chatam Sofer says, oh, he's not talking about like death, death, but not having a portion in the land of Israel that might as well be death. And so that's what he's saying. I forfeit their portion. But then it's like, excuse me, Mr. Chatam Sofer, then like words mean what they mean, right? He could have just said, I will forfeit their portion in the land of Israel, right? You could, that, that would have been a lot, a lot cleaner. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this one. It's a tough one for me. Um, I'm going to, 
because we focused on that verse, I'm going to take us to the other two verses for one second. Um, the the part that, that really caught my eye was actually in verse 36. Um, and similar to what we were talking about with the with kind of the self, uh, the, nar- the narcissism of Jacob, but also the impact of the other brothers that, that aren't mentioned or talked about in the same kind of um, loving or, or uh, favored way. And when we look at the Hebrew here, it says, Otishikaltem. So I looked up in Safari, you can do this very cool thing where you highlight the word and it gives you... Um, uh, the definition and also the root and sometimes even the conjugation that it's in, which is just... Uh, Ooh, I haven't checked that out yet. I needed that in rabbinical school and it did not. Oh, oh that's uh, very groovy. Anyway, so what it's telling us here is that shikaltem comes from this from the root shakal, or shakal as it says here, um, and it means to make childless. Um, or to be bereaved, as as they say, as the JPS actually translates it. But to me, the the idea of childless as the translation is actually even even more powerful. Given if we're going to go with the idea that talking about Joseph and Shimon means that he that that Jacob would then feel childless, even though there's another eleven humans in his life. Um, but that the removal of, of, uh, oh, sorry, Joseph, Shimon, and Benjamin, so only 10 other, um, that you would remove those children and all of a sudden that you would feel as though you have no children. That's, that's a very hard thing, I would imagine, for the other children to hear. Um, and, and commentators talk about how what they, what they meant in saying this was that Joseph and Benjamin were both from Rachel and obviously Rachel was the favored wife. And so that's, that's why Jacob was so nervous about that. Shimon just happened to also be gone. And so was used in this same sentence. But when we think about the way that, that the other brothers must have heard this, that's really, that's a very hard thing to hear, especially to Reuven, who's trying to kind of make all of this better. And even from the beginning was trying to say, no, let's, let's have this be a better scenario for our family. And let me try to help us make, um, make this okay. So that was the first thing that I wanted to show you first, because that's a cool tool in, uh, Safari. Um, but then, um, I wanted to show you. Okay. So, so this is from the, uh, the Shnei Luchot Habrit. And the, what it's picking up on here is that after Reuven says, you can have my two sons, that there is no response, as I think Elon was the person who first brought that up, that there's no response from Jacob to that point, right? We hear him then say something in the next sentence, but there's no response to him to that point. So I want to read with you this, um, this commentary here. So he says, let me first relate an explanation I have heard about the well-known statement attributed to Rabbi Yochanan and Tanit in a part of our Gemara that our patriarch Jacob did not die. The explanation I heard understands this statement not as something homiletic, but as the pshat, as the simple meaning. This in spite of the Torah having testified that Jacob's body was embalmed. 
Okay, so if Jacob's body was embalmed, then it assume, we assume, okay, well, then he died because you wouldn't embalm a live person. How do we reconcile this statement with the report in the Torah? Jacob had two names. Some of you remember maybe from a few weeks ago that I talked about how I love this idea that Jacob has two names and where they where they come up. Wait, why are you flailing? What's happening? I just put that in the chat. I said I was wondering if you'd bring this up since you just since you mentioned oh, it. Oh, oh. <laughs> I just saw flailing and I was like, look, okay. Oh, that happens. All right. Um, a person having more than one name implies that he commands additional spiritual powers. Okay, so you'll hear about people who go through a health crisis or something and they change their name and they feel as though that's a way for them to not only have a new identity, but hopefully other power, other healing um, powers and connective spiritual relationship to God. When Jacob mourned the loss of Joseph, part of his spiritual powers, the part associated with the name Jacob, departed from him because of the anguish he experienced. As a result, all the spiritual powers that he remained with were the ones associated with the name Yisrael. He experienced the loss of the spiritual powers associated with the name Jacob when the brothers took Benjamin to Egypt, an action which Jacob described with the words, you have bereaved me already, Joseph is gone, Shimon is gone, and you would take Benjamin? At that moment, Jacob's soul departed. If you will examine the text in the Torah, you will find that the name Jacob is not mentioned anymore until he received the message that Joseph was alive. At that time, the Torah writes, The spirit of their father Jacob was revived. In view of what we have just said, how can we account for the Torah's reference to the name Jacob, where the brothers are reported as returning to their father Jacob? We may assume that when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and they all experienced joy, the soul of Jacob began to revive. So one of, one of the reasons I loved this piece, not just because I like that there's two names and when are they used, and now I see in the chat that Rav Shvira wrote that, um, but because I think we see the weight that, that was felt by all of these different sons of Jacob being slowly torn away from him. And that then in this moment when he is supposed to speak to some other child of his, and as the rabbis comment to Nancy's point, grandchildren were just as important, that when, when there's going to be more of that denying him these children, that, he, that a part of him goes away. A part of him it comes back, so I don't wanna say it dies, but it goes away, it leaves his body. And he's only left with one identity. And maybe that's the identity, Elon, that it's a little bit more self-involved, right? Maybe that's the part of him that's just looking inward and not looking at the rest of his children. Maybe he's worried about his own, um, his own feelings. But it's clear that he feels a sense of loss, a sense of bereavement. And a part of him, as we all know when we experience loss, a part of him is is detached from himself um and the end of that where it says that he that he's kind of brought back into his whole being when when he realizes that joseph is alive is obviously a beautiful moment of him recognizing that his whole family is now back together and he can be whole um the last thing i'll say about this and i'll pass it back to rabbi Javier, is that it's also a complicated statement because why if you have 13 children why, if one of them 
dies, which would be a terrible tragedy. But if one of them dies, how come your entire being now has left you? Why, why is it not that you could find the same kind of connection and love and attachment to other children who you might not have paid as much attention to? Um, so anyway, I know that it's a complicated statement, but I also find some beauty in it. Rabbi Shapiro. I'll pause for a sec to see if folks have thoughts on that. Oh, anybody have any thoughts? Nancy looks like she has a thought. Nancy definitely has a thought. Nancy's thinking deep thoughts over there. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell from the face. Um, yeah, I just wonder whether that says something about the human condition and grief. I mean, certainly you do turn inward. Um, and, you know, if it were a child that died it might take you a while to come back to being able to um, be thankful and, you know, interact with all of your other kids. So I, I just, I kind of think that's really strong. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And unfortunately have known people in that situation and that, yeah, it's a, it is a natural and heartbreaking thing that happens. Um yeah, Renee. Um, no, go ahead, Matt. Or Ravish Perez, sorry. I have two names. No, go over to Renee. Okay, Renee. I was going to say, by the same token, it, it affects the children as well. I know having lost sure. my brother, you know, it, and it was just the two of us, the weight of that was much stronger because it was just the two of us. Had we had other siblings, not that his death would have been any less valuable and less yucky for me. But it would have it would have been different. Sure. So, I mean, that's why it's really a big part of why I've told my kids that they all have to have at least three kids hmm. each. Hmm. Aside from the fact that I want lots of grandkids. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> I do. I do wonder, you know, if we were to write a, a story on the story, right? Once the brothers and of and of course we are we're reading into this commentary, imagining that Jacob believes that his son has died, but we of course know that he's alive. So if we were to write a story on the story, what what would the brothers be feeling, right? That their father is going through this grief that they know is not real. And yet that grief, as you both now mentioned and is and is so real, is a grief that really that really um paralyzes you and and does not allow you to move forward for all the reasons that are extremely understandable but how do the brothers then feel and not getting that same kind of attention and um and connection and is that part of the reason why Reuven is so quick to use that as something that maybe will make his father listen up because he's seen how his father reacts to that um to that kind of ultimatum Yes, Rabbi Shapiro. You can call me Matt. The oh. thing I was just noticing was... Um, they do call me Matt. I, I, I was just noticing how that comment from the Shnei Lakotabri actually springboards off from a comment in the Talmud that's exactly the opposite, right? How the Talmud says, like, Yaakov Avinu didn't die, right? So that, that there's, like, a, a, a trajectory there, right? That there's this moment where it's like his life leaves him, and then as you were saying that it's it's like he's revived upon seeing Joseph again. So it's it's also just interesting, A to note 
what what's lost when you're grieving and then also to notice how how like literally and he says this is the shot right that like life is literally restored to him when he has that that moment of reunion yeah. which I, I don't know when when i think about the fact that hopefully two months from now my parents will be able to travel to see us after not seeing us for a year like lahav deal right like we are okay thank god we are okay it's going to be a year since I've seen my parents, since they've seen their grandkids, right? And thinking about like how diminished and painful it can be when there's separation and how life-giving it can be when there's reunion. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's that's what um, sort of resonates with me as as we're as we're playing with these ideas a bit. Um, I want to pivot. Oh yeah, Renee. Thinking also that anyone that's gone through a, a severe illness like cancer or whatever, when you go through chemo and you think that, okay, this is it. And then person comes back or even now with COVID, you know, where many people, thank God have that we know in our community have recovered from it. You know, it's kind of like that same thing that, that they, that uh, Jacob experienced when he again saw Joseph and, yeah. and Reuven, having a sense that things were going to work out too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, however, however overcommitted he is with his words, but seeming to have like this, this real, maybe it's faith, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's faith that he, he does have a sense that this will all work out. Maybe. I- right. And that, and that a faith statement for someone who is on the outside looking in might resonate as like a little wait, Whoa, man, you're really ready to say that. And he says, no, yeah, I have faith that this will work out. Rabbi Schatz did not like that statement. No, no, no. I had another thought while you were making the statement. I, no, I, I wasn't even a hundred percent listening to your statement because I had another thought. Um, uh, <laughs> Appreciate the transparency. <laughs> um, my, <laughs> my thought was, and then I'll let you talk, but my thought was that I, while we're just talking about these different kinds of grief that can happen within a family, that Reuven, as like one positive note on Reuven's end, is that Reuven is is always worried about taking care of his siblings. That his father seems incapable of doing that. And yes, bad things happen to Joseph, but Reuven is the one who doesn't want those things to happen. He really, he's not a perfect character in our Torah, but he is the one who brings the siblings together in all ways. Um, and, and I think that that's a really, it's just an interesting point to bring up and just one that, uh, that just dawned on me when, when we were talking about, uh, all this grief within a family and how you hold a family together. And if you lose a parent, is it the siblings? If you, if you lose a sibling are you know, you as the sibling, are you caring for your parents? You know, the, the different dynamics that happen and Reuven really takes on that role of being the strength for his siblings. But Yehuda is the one who ultimately makes it happen, right? Like, what do you mean that Reuven's the one? And there's some comments about this, right? That that Yehuda is almost like more strategic, right? Because Yaakov doesn't listen to Reuven here. And it's not until later on when things get really bad in the famine that Yehuda approaches Yaakov again. And then he's like, okay, okay, you can go. So what do, what do you mean that Reuven's the one who... Well, Reuven is the one at the pit that says, no, no, we can't do anything to harm him. Just put him here. And then the commentators say, because he wanted to come back and actually retrieve him and bring him right. back to his father. And then we get this moment here where he thinks about his 
about yes the the problem with um you know killing his sons is not a great a great thing but if we skip over that for just a moment um <laughs> the idea that he will do everything he can to bring to bring his brother back to his father right it just it reminds me in in this in the system of my family of being the oldest and just being the one who at times has to say this might not sound like a good idea, but this is what we're doing because this is what what's best for ex brother of mine. Um, and I don't know that it just to me that comes across in the way that Reuven, at least in those two, again he's not a perfect character, but in those two experiences, is looking out for his siblings when it doesn't look like anybody else, including his father, is doing that. Sure. So so let so let's go back to the piece that we just that we just hopped over with the the words that he says that are really problematic. Um, this, this goes in a really interesting direction. This is going to take us, uh, all the way into the story of Korah. So we're going to, we're going to go a little far afield. Yep. Oh, look at that expression on Rabbi Schatz's face. Yes. Very good. Uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, Rabbi Schatz's face was a mixture of confusion, frustration, and disgust. No frustration. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but there's, no, that, that an overstatement? You're doing great. Great. Um, those of you who know who know of the Chafetz Chaim, who's a 19th century rabbi, like he he focused very much. If 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 you ever want a source to talk to you about how very bad lashon hara is, the Chafetz Chaim is your guy, um, and he he takes the role of language and words very very seriously. So in, in juxtaposition with what the Orchaim was talking about in terms of like trying to understand why Reuven would make such a big statement or the Khatam Sofer saying like, oh, when he says you can kill my sons, he doesn't mean really kill my sons. The Chavetz Chaim, in a, in a source that I found, t- takes, takes like very seriously. And he goes so far as to say whatever issues from a man's mouth uh, is brought about by heaven. Basically saying, if if you say... Whatever you say, be really, really careful about what you say because it's going to happen, um, which which places a real challenge, burden, um, intention for us to each think about the words that we say and all the different forms of speech that we have today, right? Talking like this, texting, emails, right? And if we think seriously about all the different ways in which we communicate and bringing bringing some real um, attention to that can be both important and, and challenging. And so what the Chavetz Chaim goes on to say is that the, the Midrash tells us that because Reuven said this, you can kill my two sons, it happened with Datan and Aviram. So this is where we're going to get to Korach, right? That Datan and Aviram, who were part of the tribe of Reuven, who were part of Korach's rebellion, that um, that they were killed because Reuven said this generations ago. And he actually beautifully connects it um, because Reuven had said to Joseph, ca- said about Joseph, cast Joseph into the pit. So then Datan and Aviram get Right, they fall into the ground as sort of like almost karmic retribution, right, for what Reuven had said should happen to Joseph. Now, again, as Rabbi Schatz was saying, like Reuven was saying, cast him into the pit so the brothers wouldn't kill him, right? But he still said, cast Joseph into the pit, also not great, right? So, because he said that, that's what happened to Datan and Aviram. 
Okay, here's where it gets weird. That was the easy part. It's going to get weirder from here. Raise your hand if you if you can remember Own Ben Pellet. Any Own Ben Pellet fans in the house? No Own Ben Pellet fans in the when, house. When Rabbi Shapiro sent this to me in a text message earlier asking me if I knew Own Ben Pellet, I thought that he meant Ben Platt. So I do know Ben Platt very well. I don't know Own Ben Pellet, so I'm very excited to hear how the two are related. Great. So apparently... Apparently, also, though I am a Ben Platt fan, uh, 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 not an Own Ben Pellet fan, because I also hadn't heard of him. Own Ben Pellet basically, in short, gets mentioned at the beginning of the story of Korach, but isn't mentioned among those who get killed in the rebellion of Korach, right? So whenever there's that, there's that gap in biblical narrative, Right. There's always going to be sort of a rabbinic response for like, well, if he was in that list here, but he's not in this list here, where did he go? Right. It can't be an accident. It has to be on purpose. And so what the Chafetz Chaim said is because Reuven's intention here was good, even though Datan and Aviram get smoted, Own Ben Pellet gets saved because Ruven's intention here was good. So he loses two, but he gains the one. Now, I, I've got to, I'm going to share this because it was just, it was fascinating to read. So this, I'm going to just share my screen because it's, it's a lot of content. I know we only have a couple of minutes, but it's, it's, it's very fun to share. So we're going to check it out for just a couple of minutes here. Okay. So this is, uh, a, a, a long-ish drash from Rabbi David Egengoff, who's a contemporary, just wrote it a couple of years ago. Basically, so here you see On Ben Pellet, right? So this is from the beginning of Bamidbar. Uh, God stops the rebellion in its tracks. Two verses specifically re- uh, reference Korach, Datan, and Aviram. But notably absent is On Ben Pellet. He started the rebellion. Why doesn't he get punished? He seems to have vanished from our story. Okay, here we go. Talmud time. Very good. Rav says, Own Ben Pellet was saved by his wife. She said to him, why do you care whether Moshe is in charge or Korach's in charge? You're still just going to be a disciple. Own Ben Pellet, wanting to be uh, accountable for his actions. What can I do? I'm already in. I'm already with Korach. But his heroic but ever-anonymous wife, we are still talking about rabbinic and biblical texts, of course, his heroic but ever-anonymous wife developed the second part of her strategically brilliant plan. I know that Klal Yisrael are a holy community. Sit here and I will save you. She gave him wine to drink, caused him to become intoxicated, laid him down in the tent. This resonates, of course, with a couple of stories that we have in Nevi'im. Then she sat at the entrance of the tent and loosened and uncovered her hair. Oh, goodness. Whoever came to summon him saw her and retreated because she was in an immodest state. And so because she got him drunk and she scared all of the men away with her immodest hair, she saved his life. Mm. Rabbi Schatz, any thoughts on that story? Yep. 
<laughs> Isn't that great? That's so much fun. Rabbinic literature is fascinating. Yeah. Rabbi Schatz, what do you what do you what do you think? No, no, no. Renee had her hand up. Oh, very good. Yes, Renee. Oh, she's struck. Oh, I was just going to ask you. So, does that mean that immodesty is a good thing now? <laughs> Rabbi Schatz, is immodesty a good thing? No. All things in proper measure. Renee. All things in proper measure. I, I will say so. So in addition to just finding it like a fun excursus through the wild and wacky world of rabbinic literature, um, a, I, a, I'm always fascinating, fascinated by stories of redemption, right? That, that this character, On, who seems to have gone all the way down with Korah, pun not intended until I realized it, still somehow manages to be redeemed. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by stories that present that paradigm and how folks get helped along the way, however deviously or brilliantly, right, to be able to change their ways. I'm always fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by that filtering it back through the Midrashic lens into Reuven, that even though, and, and the Chafetz Chaim takes speech seriously, he takes speech so seriously that he's saying, he said this, so this is what that happened, but intention still matters, right? Even if you say something really, really bad, yes, you're accountable to that speech and your intention when you say it matters. I think that's really interesting. And I also think it's really interesting filtering back sort of through the character uh, of Reuven, like back up into the story. Um, I also think it's just fascinating when we think about what we want to pass on to our kids, what we want to pass on to those who come after us um, and how we lay groundwork for good and for ill. Right. That, and, and we know this, right. That, that rabbinic literature tries to get out of how the, the punishment can be laid upon generations afterwards, but there's no doubt still that the way we live our lives play out and the way our kids and our grandkids and so on and so forth live their lives. Um, and just thinking about refracting this back through the story and into a narrative where there can be so many problematic family dynamics, right? What are the ways in which like I, I'll talk about myself. I, with the kids I have, not worrying about grandkids yet, Renee, I'm still a few years off from that, but thinking about for myself, how do I want to live my life in such a way that, that I'm um, playing a healthy and, and substantive and connective and, you know, meaningful groundwork for them. So it's fun rabbinic text, but it also brings up all those thoughts for me. Let's hear what Rabbi Schatz has to say about the story because she has been notably quiet. She also realizes that it's 12.01, so she's not going to go. Oh, you can't no comment that story. I, you got to say something. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I, what I'm going to say, I'm going to use my rabbinic artistry to, to not answer the question you're asking. Oh. Um, what I'm going to say is that I think that it's very interesting that, I guess this has somewhat to do with what you're asking. It's very interesting how much our rabbis use stories to try to, to talk about different characters that we, that we feel the need to kind of uh, understand in a different way, right? We want to make Jacob look like a hero. We want to understand why Reuben would have said that because it's so crazy that he would have said it, right? I think that's just a fascinating piece of, um, of what our rabbis do. 
Um, I don't love that it's that it's because a woman put her hair down and that that's an issue, but we can talk about that another time. Um, it's good that she put her hair down. It saves the day that she put her hair down. I know. I understand that. Thank you. Uh, Hooray for hair. Yeah, great. But I, but I do, I do think that this this part of the story, and interestingly, Rajpur and I talk, like kind of focus on two separate pieces. So I hope you're walking away. Um, connected to at least one of those pieces. Um, but I, I think that it's an interesting part of this story that, that opens up for us the eyes of, of, of what happens in family dynamics when a father either isn't, uh, I'll say a parent, a parent isn't as attentive to what is going on with their children um, or when the siblings are not aware of what is going on with the parents, right? That living in a family dynamic is, is about understanding what is going on with everybody, not with just those who you are, who are your, you know, compatriots, right? That, that the siblings understand one another and the parents understand one another. Um, and I think speaking back to to Elon's point that we see Jacob as this very selfish character because he really is only worried about himself or his wife's children, right? He's really only he's only linearly, linearly um, thinking about his life. He's not letting it trickle down. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.